from the entertainment capital of the world, I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. It's been a heck of a two weeks, folks. Been sick for two weeks, back-to-back colds. Got so bad, sinus infection started to set in. I'm just getting over it now. What did I do? Well, I couldn't get to the doctor. He was booked up. Why? Because everybody around me is sick. People at work, my kids, my wife, we've all been fighting it. And uh, had someone do a house call. Yeah, they have a mobile service out here. They, they come to your house, check your vitals, and prescribe medication. Pretty freaking cool, huh? Wow, what a lifesaver. Anyway, why are we here today? Well, Phil Hester is returning to the show. Quite appropriate for Halloween this week because Phil is working on a book with Jeff Lemire, Family Tree. A bit of body horror in that book, so perfect for Halloween. That's coming out in November, on November 13th. And we're going to talk about that book. And Phil's going to talk about working with Jeff Lemire. What has he learned from Jeff about storytelling? Yes, a veteran like Phil is learning a lot of things from Jeff Lemire. And he also talks about his other work that he's done. He also talks about the story he recently did about Martian Manhunter in Secrets of Sinister House. That was a one-shot that came out in early October. He did that with Andre Parks. And he also talks about what happened to Blood Blister and about his other creator-owned work, The Wretch, and that collection of all the stories that were put out through Omaha Bound. Yep, it's out and it's available, so we're going to talk about that. Plus, Phil answers a lot of questions that we did not get to last time when we kicked back with the creator, and man, he has some great insights about creating. So, please join me now and Phil Hester, here now on Creator Talks. Phil, welcome back to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me back. Last time we chatted, one of the first questions I asked you was, what was the first comic book you ever bought? Let me ask you this. What was the last one that you bought recently? (laughs) Well, I have a problem. I pull a lot of books at my comic shop, and I'm also very busy. So I pull a ton of books, but I don't pick up a ton of books right away. (laughs) <laughs> I sort of just given over one of my credit cards to them and said, you know, just run me a tab every week, charge me what you should, and I'll come pick them up when I can. So last time I was in, I usually I come in and pick up a short box every mm-hmm. time I come in. I'm years and years behind things, but I did just finally get current on Immortal Hulk, and I really enjoyed that. So I'll say that. I'll say the latest issue of Immortal Hulk. Oh, excellent. Al's been on the show, and that is a book that I still read, and I read it in hard copy. Yeah, me too. I, I read everything in hard copy, unless it's not available that way. Yeah. You know, if it's only web strip, I'll go check out the web strip, but I like everything on paper. I can understand that. I still mix it up a bit, but one thing I insist on being on paper are the older issues. I insist if it's newsprint, it's got to be on newsprint. I don't want to read it digitally because yeah. it's recolored, blah, blah, blah. And every once in a while, I'll find something this shopping website, let's say, and I'll buy a back issue. Well, I moved out west and I saw some books and I'm like, ooh. So I started ordering a bunch of books and then I realized days later, oh crap, they have my old address like clear across the country. So I'm like, hey, oh, I'm sorry. But they're like, oh, one out. But you know, you've got a forwarding. I'm like, yeah, I have a forwarding in with the post office. It'll be fine. So they'll get there. I'm like, okay. So they're almost all here now. And I've been tracking one. 
and it went from the West Coast all the way over to the East Coast into a Jersey facility, and now I see it's in Anchorage, Alaska, making its way to Las Vegas. (laughs) So so the postage due is going to be killer, and I wish I was having the trip that that book was having right now, because it's going everywhere. Yeah, I had something like that, too. Like, I had... I think it was a piece of original art that I'd ordered. Ooh. And every time you buy original art, you get nervous about the shipping. Oh, yeah. And I was tracking it. And at one point, it was on the truck to my house. I was like, great, it'll be here today. And then it didn't come. And the next day, I tracked it. And it was all the way back to its point of origin. Hmm. And I'm like, how did that happen? But that's the vagaries of... Uh, shipping things you care about. If we just put them out of our mind, it's like watching a pot boil. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if we didn't think about it, it would show up in a heartbeat. Because we care, we have to track it every day. I know, I track every day and it, it's a little crazy because it'll say arrived in Wilmington, departed Wilmington, arrived back in Wilmington. I'm like, "Wait, what what a minute. What's going on?" Yeah, <laughs> it's going in a circle. Why? So, <laughs> but it all works out. Yeah. Are there any comics that you read now as an adult or an older adult that you did not read when you were younger? In other words, have your tastes changed? Are there other books that you're reading certain comic genres? I I would say that my tastes have expanded over time. I certainly haven't dropped any genres. I still love the stuff I loved when I was a kid. But I will say that every year I get older my tastes broaden a little bit and I come to accept things I normally wouldn't be into. And I think as largely like when you're a kid and you're reading things or listening to music, you're looking for things that are emblematic of the identity you're trying to build for yourself. Like this has got to reflect me in some way, you know, like if you're a straight edge punk, you want stuff that reflects your straight edge punk lifestyle and you reject stuff that's like bubblegum or pop. You know, and then as you get older, you realize that's all ridiculous and <laughs> you start opening yourself up to things that don't have to represent you in some way. Not everything I read or listen to now has to be a manifesto that reflects my personal life choices. And it's like throwing off a giant yoke. <laughs> like you, you, get, you, open so, you open yourself up to so many more beautiful experiences if you start approaching stuff on its terms instead of making it approach you on yours. That's something that's happened to me over time. Just, I mean, in terms of fine arts, in terms of music, film, and definitely comics. But I will say, because I loved comics the most out of any art form, that I was willing to sort of go on that journey pretty early. I was like 13 when I started getting into like underground comics. And I would go to like head shops to buy underground comics when I was just a little kid. And anytime something new came along that wasn't a superhero comic, I would glom onto it. When I saw Love and Rockets, uh, when I saw Nexus, when I saw Cerebus, when I was a young teen, those were definitely aimed at people older than me, but I was hungry for them. And so I jumped on that sort of alternative bandwagon early. And then, of course, also uh, Raw started coming out toward the end of me being in high school and going to college. And that just kind of blew my head open about what comics could be. And with all those influences, I guess that ultimately led to you creating The Wretch, mm-hmm. which last time we spoke, you were working on a new story for The Wretch for this omnibus. 
Yes. That I am resting my hand on right now. It arrived. Yes, it's out. It's, it's actually out. Came out. Yes. <laughs> Omaha yeah. Press. Here it yes. is. Phil Hester and Omaha Friends. Bound. Yeah. Omaha, Omaha Bound. Omaha Bound. Phil Hester and Friends. Nice big thick volume here. Isn't it the heaviest? It is. Soft cover you've ever held. <laughs> I threw it in my briefcase today and you know, threw it on my uh, shoulder and I was like, oh man, this is really heavy. It's like so heavy for a soft cover. But the paper's really nice. And the cover, even though it's a soft cover, it's kind of a neat, textured, pebbly, kind of hybrid cover. So it's not just like a paper cover. It's pretty neat. But it's totally my fault because I said, I really don't want to put out this omnibus without doing at least one new short story. And it started out being six pages, and then it became eight, and then 10, and 12, and then it wound up being like a 16-page story. And so it grew every time you know, I got into it and worked on it. And then, of course, I had to fit it around the paying work because this is all a labor of love. Mm -hmm. So it took years longer than it should have. But in the end, I'm very happy with the result. It's one of my favorite wretch stories. And I think people that pick this thing up are kind of already fans of the wretch will find that it sort of fits right into the character's long history. It was a very touching story. I really liked it. Reading what you had written in the book, this was one of your original ideas. It's a little different than when you initially conceived yeah. it. You were pitching ideas. This was one of the ones that was in there. Yeah, it was... Um, I've probably only done about half of the red stories that I started to develop because every red story is odd and they can be based on the smallest, weirdest little hook. And sometimes when I was working on the book, I'd be like, oh, I need an eight-page idea. And I knew uh, Night of the Flying Telephone Poles, which is the story we're talking about right now. I knew that was not an eight-page story, you know, so I'd have to go develop a different story. So even today, I still have a backlog of probably a dozen or so red stories that I haven't executed. I have to at least tell the Omaha Bound guys that I'm not going to, <laughs> because they were like, oh, we wanted this to be every red story. And I'm like, okay, sure, we're done. <laughs> but like deep down inside, if I won the lottery, I would start Wretch all over again. Well, and that's the thing. It's a labor of love. So if you were to start working on those now, everything else, the paying work's going to suffer. Right. And I got to do the paying work. Yeah. Got to eat. I'll have mortgages to pay. I will have a wedding to pay for soon, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. You know, just stuff like that. My, my wife wants to retire early, so I'm like, oh, I better get to work. <laughs> Now, do you think this will be distributed more widely through Diamond? We talked about that being a possibility. Oh, oh, good. And you can actually, you don't have to pre-order. You can actually go online to the Omaha Bound website right now and order today. It's sort of a print-on-demand plus. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to have it in print perpetually. Boy, I want to say we always have like 100 in the bank um, ready to go out. And if enough people order it, we'll whip up some more. You know, because the guys at Omaha Bound, uh, Tim and David, they both worked out a really cool relationship with the actual printer of the book. And yeah, our goal is to always have it on hand. So it was infamously hard to get a hold of for a long time. Slave Labor had previously reprinted all the short stories into three volumes. They were hard to get, mostly because Slave Labor had gone out of business for a while. So people have been hunting high and low for these trades, and now you don't have to. Now you can get them all in one book. Those of you hearing about this for the first time, you don't have to wait now. I waited a couple yeah, of years. It's it. out. Go get it. <laughs> yeah, go get it. <laughs> you, you lucky people. Now, speaking of paying work, I see you have something else coming up. Through DC, it's a Martian Manhunter story, working with Andre Parks again, and others, Secrets of Sinister House. It's going to be in this uh, special... Yeah, Halloween special. Yeah, 80 pages. Now, your story's part of that. 
And right. uh, when I looked at the listing for this, it listed all these creators and others. I'm you, others. You shouldn't be and others. Come on. <laughs> I, I think I'm others because only because I was added to the mix late. Okay. Boy, I feel like I just drew this not that long ago. And for a Halloween book, that's kind of cutting it close. Yeah. It was written by uh, uh, Diego Lopez, who is normally a um, an editor at DC. And he's wanting to write some things. And um, this is one of the first things he's written. And it's really awesome. And I love Marsha Manor, so it's fun to draw. And it's definitely a horror story. And superhero slash horror stories are definitely my bailiwick. So mm -hmm. it's uh, maybe the most gross thing, I think, ever drawn for DC superhero book. I've drawn gross stuff for Vertigo, but this is the grossest thing I've ever drawn for a straight. Gross? Yeah. Well, it's a horror comic, so yeah. yeah, there's a lot of yeah, it's gross. I don't know if there's any way to put it, <laughs> but but yeah, the way you draw though, it doesn't it doesn't look gross. It might look scary. Okay, yeah, it, you'll see. Okay, right. <laughs> now you've piqued my interest even more. About how long is this story? How many pages are we talking? Ten pages. Talk? Ten pages. Okay. Ten pages. All yep. right. And uh, Andy Parks came along and inked it. We're very happy the way it turned out. So there's something to look forward to for Halloween. I oh, and I forgot. That. Jeremy Cox colored it also. He did a bang-up job. Great lineup. Are you planning anything with Dynamite? Because you did a lot of work with them before Green Hornet. And you have yeah. for Oh, good, good. Can you share anything? No, no, I was I was agreeing with your no. <laughs> no, There's nothing on the horizon. I am always open to it. I mean, I did just do like just a James Bond cover recently, but uh, I'm always open to working there. I had a really good relationship with Nick and Joe and Nate and a lot of the other editors there. And I'd, I'd always be open to coming back and doing more, probably more writing, because my drawing time is spoken for for quite a while with Family Tree. So I don't know if you want to get there yet. But so, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I'd draw anything for them, but I'd definitely go back and write for them. Well, I do want to get the Family Tree, but there was a book, uh, Blood Blister, that you worked on. A couple mm -hmm. issues came out, and then there were some issues with getting the book done. You know, there were things that happened, life things happened with the artist and everything. And Yeah. And then I guess they just didn't finish it, and it wasn't resolicited. And I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> I, yeah, I just usually they resolicit, especially when they're already in two issues. I'm not sure what happened there. It's largely down to Tony Harris having some troubles in his personal life and mm -hmm. having to sort of take some time out and refocus on uh, what he wants to do, both in terms of his family life, his personal life, and his professional life. That's always going to be more important than comics. And we tried to think about going ahead without Tony, but he was a large factor in people buying the book in the first place because he's deservedly, he's a star in comics and he's super talented. And they decided that it probably wasn't worth pursuing without Tony. Mm, okay. I mean, I still have a good relationship with Aftershock. In fact, I've done two other books with them recently. And there's always the potential of coming back and approaching the book again in a different way, like maybe as an original graphic novel. But anytime I do any creator-owned book, I co-own it with my creators. I, they're not hired hands. Tony owns half a blood blister. And... If he still wants to do it, that's his call. If he wants somebody else to do it, that's his call. If he wants no one to ever do it again, that's his call because he owns half of it. And I can't move forward without him. So that's just sort of the realities of making comics. It's, it's sort of like, to put it in Hollywood terms, you can put a deal together for a huge movie series, 
and the first movie can come out and be a blockbuster and you get the sequel up and running. And if the star doesn't want to do it, it's not going to happen. That's sort of the case with Bloodluster. And I hold out hope that maybe someday we might get a graphic novel out, or I may just even straight up adapt it as a prose novel. I'm not sure, but there's a chance we'll see the story continue someday. I totally respect that. And, you know, that is a good idea, a prose novel, because you could do that. And Tony could yeah. do illustrations like chapter art. Exactly, and that way it's yeah. a lot less of a burden and both participate in your property. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. And there has been interest in the book from Hollywood. So we'd like to, you know, eventually try to get that story completed and out there. You know, by way of analogy, um, one of the shows I watched recently, a movie of, uh, was Deadwood. And I loved the series. And it ended, mm-hmm. you know, didn't get a chance to finish. And then like 10 years later or so, they finally get around to making right. a movie. And, you know, I understand that because much like what you're saying about your book, everyone had to come together and work on it to make it work. You know, you couldn't have yeah. certain actors not there. And, and it was worth the wait. And then you got the end of the story. Are there any stories out there, talking about comics, that never finished, that you wish had been finished? Like, oh, I'll give you an gosh. example of mine. There was the Daredevil Bullseye one, the Target, that came out right oh, before yeah. the movie. And the first issue was great. Kevin Smith worked on it, and, and then nothing. And other things came up. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, is there anything else you can think of that you wish they had managed to finish it? Boy, that's hard to say. I mean, so many books get canceled yeah. prematurely and you want them to go on and on. I mean, I could give you multiple examples just from my work. You know, <laughs> um, I did a book. I think the two biggest examples of that are Firebreather and Golly, which were both books I did for Image. And both ran into trouble keeping our artists or keeping my artists paid <laughs> while they worked on the books. And, um, you know, we sort of had to like call it quits. But if I had my way, I'd be making both of those books today. Maybe someday. But you are making one now with Jeff yeah. Lemire, Family Tree. You've been working hard on that through Image Comics, as a matter of fact. First issue's coming out November 13th. Back into horror now. An eight-year-old girl is turning into a tree. Why? Who's after her? Who's protecting her? And the name Family Tree, and I'm not going to give away things on the first issue, but you can see stuff in the solicit, folks. Yeah. But it, it is about not only someone in the family that's becoming a tree, but it's about the family tree and right. how the characters are all relating to each other and how they're all in some way supporting each other. So tell me more about this project that you and Jeff began and how did it all get started? Well, Jeff and I have been mutual admirers for a while and sort of always looking for something to connect on that we could collaborate on. And I think when I did Shipwreck at Aftershock, that's a book I just drew at Aftershock that Warren Ellis wrote. Jeff was a big fan of the way that book looked. And I think that sort of reminded him that we we should collaborate someday. And he had Family Tree kind of bubbling in his mind, and he thought, you know, this harkens back to my time on Swamp Thing, that sort of early vertigo look that I had. It harkens back to some earlier projects in my career, like stuff that are really deep cuts that most people don't know about, like a book called Bone Shaker and another one called Freak Some More. And those are books I used to definitely used a more kind of itchy, idiosyncratic line that's sort of reminiscent of a South American artist named Jose Munoz. And I think Jeff thought that that look would really work for this kind of creepy, claustrophobic story. So we connected on this, and it's been going great guns ever since. And we've had a couple of false starts because (laughs) Jeff's very busy. (laughs) And 
you know, like he turned around and he's writing like half of Marvel's line. <laughs> yes. And then the next year, half of DC's line. And then the next year, he's got a television show. So, yeah, he's got to juggle all those things. I also have to juggle all those things. At my age, I can't draw more than one book at a time like I used to. So, you know, I had to wait to come free. It wound up that Family Tree wasn't going to come out until 2019. But now that it's 2019, we're here and we're ready to scare you. <laughs> scare you, but but also, I, I think Jeff and I, on our personal projects, we both have this kind of rep for doing stories that are, at least on the surface, kind of horror stories. But beneath that are definitely more about family relationships or love stories, or they're horror stories with kind of a, a human heart to them. This definitely fits into that subgenre. I guess I would call horror by softies. <laughs> <laughs> now, has Jeff written the whole thing, or is he leaving this a little more open-ended? I've read through issue five, and it's sort of open-ended. And that's sort of Jeff's, I think that's just the way Jeff works. Like, he gets into a story and then like he starts riffing on it and it takes him different places, sometimes different places than what he planned. I don't know if you read Royal City, but that's a book that I think Jeff originally conceived as something that he would do for years and years and years. But as he was writing, he's like, oh, here's the ending. The ending came up. And so he ended it. And I think that's the same approach he's taking with Family Tree. He's just going to do it and see where it goes. I'm down with that, too. I'm, I'm happy to see wherever it goes. And so far, it's been very illuminating. I've learned a ton about making comics from Jeff, even though he's, gosh, I think he's 10 years or more younger than I am. He's had a lot to teach me, and I'm very grateful for that. Without giving away any secrets, curious to know, what are you learning? Like, What surprised you about his <laughs> style of writing, then? This was something new for you. Right. Specifically, he really knows how to pace a story. There would be points in an issue, like in the first couple of issues that I was drawing, and I wasn't quite used to his writing style yet. And I'd be like, man, we're really wasting pages here. And nothing's happening here. Let's get moving. And that's because I'm so used to working economically. You know, I'm so used to like trying to get as much information as possible across in a limited space. And Jeff, because he's had a good deal of success with his books, knows nobody's going to come along and pull the plug until he wants it pulled. Like a mangaka, he can say, all right, I know that I'm going to take this number of issues to tell a story. So I had the time to like slow down and develop a character, a character that you might not think is important, but is going to be important in two issues. I just can't tell you that yet. And that discipline, that sense of not just spilling your guts instantly the second you can in a story is a skill that I was aware of, but had not exercised much of myself. And um, watching Jeff show me how to do it has been very, like I said earlier, very illuminating. And um, it's something I'm taking to heart. I've seen him doing that in Black Hammer, how he lets the characters really breathe and develop slowly. And I think that yeah. was one he, he planned it to be shorter, but it, like you said, the way he works, he just goes with it if something inspires him or he says that's the end. But And I think he's about reached that point. You know, you should work on a Black Hammer book or a one-shot. Well, we're sort of booked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I would, it would be fun. It would be fun. It's kind of crazy to see this idea he had kind of blossom into like a Hellboy-sized universe at Dark Horse. When I thought, wow, what could Phil do? And he has, Jeff has a lot of uh, DC analogs in his story yeah. of Black Hammer. And I thought, well, would it be cool if there was a Green Hornet analog that he could tell a story about? 
but I'm just wishing. I'm just wishing. <laughs> no, there's any number of things that it would be fun to work on with. Listen, we won't get into it, but Jeff and I had a lot of other near misses before we got Family Tree up and running, mostly at DC. And if I told you what they were, your your heart would break. <laughs> they would have been very, very cool books. But in the end, I'm glad we're working on a property that we both own instead of um, having to sort of, you know, dance to another's tune. Well, with the near misses, and of course, don't tell me, please. Why were they near misses? I mean, was the timing not right? Was it just not the yeah, direction? Yeah, it could be any number mm -hmm. of things. It was timing or it was Jeff had a very specific idea and it didn't fit in with, you know, a big continuity mm -hmm. wave sweeping across, you know, the company at the time. So it had to go by the wayside. I see. Um, just things like that. Yeah. So, and Jeff, again, is, I mean, he's a humble, self-effacing guy, but he has the right to call some shots now, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And if he gets a note that doesn't make any sense to him, he can walk away from a project. I can't. Like, if I'm writing something and I get a note that I don't like, I have to say, yeah, yeah. yes, may I have another. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have, to, I have to make that work. But Jeff can be like, hey, I don't need this. I got a TV show to go work on, you know? I got a screenplay to write. It's not like he quits in a huff or says, uh, don't you know who I am? Oh, right. It's like if, if something is not rewarding to him anymore, he doesn't have to stick around for it. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of these near misses, it kind of bordered on that sort of situation where it was sort of like it started to become frustrating and not rewarding. Well, at least with this project, Family Tree, it's yours. You know, you guys, you're not fitting into another universe. That's the nice right. thing about these creator-owned properties. And you work together well. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been very rewarding, and I think people will enjoy it. Last time you were on, I asked you some questions, some fun questions, ask all my guests. And it's been, I can't believe it's been almost two years since we last really? I It seems like it was yesterday, but it's been two years. And I've had a lot more questions to ask all my guests that I'd like to ask you. And they're not about comics, just about you. Learn more about you. For example, first question, your favorite birthday. What was your favorite birthday? Boy. That's kind of tough. I hadn't really thought about that. I can tell you what my least favorite birthday was. It was 25. <laughs> because 25 is when nobody considers you a kid anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? They forget about you. you. Are, yeah, you are <laughs> grown up man now, and you're on your own. And, you know, even up to like 20 or 21, every birthday was a big event. Yeah. You know, but by 25, everyone's like, okay, yeah, it's your birthday. Great. Go out and rent a car. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can do that. That's about it. Boy, you know when I found out you couldn't rent a car under 25? When I tried to do it. I was in a, stuck in a city and tried to do it. And I'm like, wait, I can? Uh. Um, but I've had a very kind of blessed life. And I have a wife that I love. I've been married to. We've been together since we were 16 years old. Wow. Um, Good for you. Uh, my, my kids are out and grown now. Mm -hmm. And they're with people they love and careers that they both care about a great deal. So, and I've got to basically have my dream job. And so I really like, I don't gloss over everything, but it's been a wonderful life. You can't just center on just one birthday. It's all been good. Yeah. Now this is a hypothetical situation. If someone were to make an action figure of you, yes. what would be your accessory? A pencil, of course, <laughs> a pencil behind the ear. Now, my next question, this is kind of something that uh, Jay Leno would do when he was on uh, David Letterman's show. And Dave would say, Jay, what grinds your gears? 
And uh, what's your beef? What's your beef? And uh, I also saw a post by Taylor Esposito on Twitter that I thought was interesting. I want to give him credit for this idea. And he did ask people what really gets under your skin, what what grinds your gears, and then conversely, what brings you back and makes you happy again. What is it that really kind of irritates you? But then, yeah, you know, this kind of like takes that all away. Uh, well, I, are you talking about specifically in comics? Oh, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be comics. Well. Let's stick to comics. <laughs> I would say the only thing that really turns me off to another creator is when they dog another creator's work in public, especially when it's an older creator that they may owe something stylistically to. I've actually seen that happen, and it's been kind of, it's very, to me, it's quite galling. Mm-hmm. Like if I see somebody run down an artist, and you can say, wait, I see that artist in your work. But besides that, just seeing anybody run down another artist, you don't know what they're going through. They might be under a tight deadline. And we all come to this job with vastly different skill sets, expecting, expecting me to do the same things that Brian Hitch does is, or Adam Hughes does is ridiculous because I, I just don't have the same skill set. <laughs> you know? it's, like, it's like I can go to the gym every day. I'm not going to learn to dunk. Mm-hmm. Five, six. <laughs> you know, it's not happening. And in the same way, I mean, people do have talent. Talent is a real thing. And people approach books, uh, I mean, art styles on books differently on purpose often. Mm-hmm. And just to see kind of an intolerance for another artist's style just kind of rubs me the wrong way. But the thing that brings me back is to see that, especially among younger artists, you're all really super supportive of each other. And they all kind of build these really incredible social media networks for each other and stick by each other and support each other. And that's a really heartwarming to see. That's what brings me back. I do see that, especially on Twitter. I see a lot of support among the uh, younger creators. But I agree with you too. When someone criticizes another artist publicly, like you said, you don't know what they're going through. Nobody comes out and says, I'm going to do the worst job I can possibly do. No. Right. Right. I mean, there's a really famous example of that when, I think it was Harlan Nelson really ran down Don Heck once. And I'm like, nothing's wrong with Don Heck. <laughs> he's just not a he's just not a genius, you know? Okay. He still brings something to the table. It's not worth running the guy down, calling him a hack. You know, he's okay, so he's not Jack Kirby. Who else is? <laughs> yeah, I just don't have much I listen, it, it doesn't mean I don't think books should should or should not be criticized. It's just that when I see and especially an uninformed opinion running down another artist's work. It mm. just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. I always say it's got to be constructive criticism, uh, you know, and, and it has to be delivered in a professional manner that the person would be receptive to the feedback. And publicly is probably not the best way. And I will say this also, the people who have the impulse to do that usually don't have the discernment to tell whether they're right or not. <laughs> so they're usually <laughs> out showing their ass when they do stuff like that. <laughs> So you have to consider the source. Yeah. The next question, I was going to ask you, what's the biggest problem in the world? But that's too big. So let's <laughs> let's talk about the biggest challenge in comics today. I think it is trying to, well, I see hope for it on the horizon, um, but trying to keep these younger readers that are so into comics right now, trying to keep them comic book readers throughout their lifetime. And I think we've got a great kind of head start that we haven't had in generations going on here because stuff like. Uh, Reina's books or the Dogman books or Amulet or Bone. 
they're really being just eaten up in elementary schools all over the country. And the kids reading those books make no distinction between reading graphic novels and reading, period. Hmm. And that's why I'm really excited about DC's big move to do middle grade books and young adult reader books, because they really want to sort of baby step all those people that, uh, and then also even the Walmart books, just getting them out where people can see them. Those are all efforts to make those grade school readers into lifelong comic book readers. And I don't know what the ultimate solution is. I know we should be trying and not just like, God bless the Wednesday crowd. I love it. I'm one of those people. You know, I care about superhero comics more than I should, but we need to find a way to be a little bit more like the like the manga market in Japan and do books for a huge, broad swaths of society that we don't know. Yes, and make them available everywhere. Yeah, and it's tough to do. And I know that's tough to do because retail spots in places like Walmart, they cost money. They just don't put things on the <laughs> at the checkout stand unless you pay a fee. It's a tough nut to crack. But it is exciting to go into a war and see those DC giants. I'm really excited to be a part of some of those stories that are coming up. And it feels good to know that I could walk into a Walmart in a small town in near me in Iowa and and just pick up my work. You know, it's pretty neat. That is great to see again. I remember when I was a kid, they used to have uh, the three pack of comics like in Kitty yep. World. You know, three for 99 cents. Yeah. Great way to get into I, I must be older than you because like when I was a kid, it was three for 79 cents. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm talking like the mid to late 70s is when I would see that. Kind well, of stuff. same here, but like I was. You got a better Oklahoma. deal than I did. <laughs> yeah. Like in Oklahoma, you could go to TG&Y and get three for 79. And then if you went to the toy aisle, there was a basket of totally illegal comics. Oh. Where they had, <laughs> you know, back in the day, returnability. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to ship the whole book back. You just had to ship Cover. the logo back. And so some manager at TGY was going through and like uh, just cutting the logos off of books and then throwing them in a bin for a nickel. Yeah. So like, if you just wanted readers, you could just go load up on readers at the TGY nickel bin. Yeah, I could get that kind of stuff at the farmer's market. They would have like either yeah. part of the cover torn off or there'd be coverless books in there. And I would pick up like copies of Invaders or Fantastic Four in the farmer's market. Yeah, all illegal. Yeah. And one of the packs I picked up, the three for 99 cents, was like the first three issues of Star Wars. I never took them out because wow. I bought them on the newsstand. Oh, I still, cool. I still have them in the bag. Oh, I that's never neat. That's probably That's probably a rare collectible now. It might be. I never checked into it. But the first Star Wars that I bought, the first issue, before the movie even came out, I kept the receipt from the 7-Eleven. So I had oh, the wow. exact date. I just like threw it inside the book. I found it later, and I was like, oh, my God. I can't believe I did that. That's crazy. <laughs> it was like May or April or May. That's crazy. Another great source for kids with the comics and the graphic novels is the libraries because they're doing oh, yeah. a lot more now. They have whole sections, which is great. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, and like I said, we've got them while they're kids. The goal is to sort of keep them interested after puberty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are ways to do there are ways to do that besides just doing superhero comics. But God bless superhero comics; those will always be my favorite kind of comics. But I'd love to see romance comics come back, and horror comics come back, and science fiction, and war stories—all those kind of different genres that we could be playing in. I'd love to see come back. Amen. Do you fret about your comic career? What keeps you up at night? Is it? where's the next job or what do you worry about? <laughs> I, well, a little bit, but like no more than a normal person. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was, I always say that like 
I don't know what I'm doing six months from now. I really don't. I don't know what my job will be six months from now. But guess what? Nobody else does either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they think they do, but they don't. Your company could go belly up or right. you could lose your business or you just don't know. I at least know it's coming. So to me, that's part of the fun also. It's, I'll admit, I really haven't had to go looking for work in a long time. Opportunities kind of, I'm not bragging. They're, they're coming to me and I'm sure that will change someday. <laughs> you know? uh, there's an old freelancer saying, which is sooner or later, you say no to your last gig. You you just don't know when that's going to happen. Like you pass on a gig and no one asks for another one and everybody goes through that. But I'd say the closest thing I have to an existential fear about my career in comics is not living long enough to tell the stories I want to tell. I get about one creator, creator owned book out a year and I have a big list of about 30 creator owned books I want to do. I'm 53 years old. (laughs) I'm not going to get 30 books out. And also I keep thinking of new ones every year. Some of these things got to get triaged. You know, some things are not going to happen. I don't know how long my working career is going to be. I don't know how long comics in their current state are going to be here. We may move to an all graphic novel format. We may move to all web strip format. I don't know. But I do know as long as comics are around, I'll be doing. Well, that's good to hear. You've got a lot of ideas. That's fantastic. All that stuff in queue in the back of your head? You have some of that stuff written out? (laughs) Yeah. No, I have a big board, and I move things around on it. And, you know, it's got like, I mean, maybe a third of them are any good. So that's sort of my goal is to sort of (laughs) (laughs) sit with them for a while and see which of these 30 are worth pursuing and and which are not. In your career, I want to look at both sides of the coin here. What do you regret the most, and what is your proudest achievement? I definitely feel like what I regret the most is waiting around for people to discover me. I'm from the Midwest and there's sort of an endemic, almost passive aggressive politeness in the Midwest. And it's sort of like, as I was working in comics, I was sort of like, well, look, people know who I am. They know what I can do. If they want me, they'll come find me, you know, and that is not how comics works. You need to be out on the track asking for work, asking for assignments, and asserting yourself. And that's something that's very hard for me to to learn. You know, I think I probably missed opportunities by not asking to write earlier or not trying to write earlier, especially at Marvel and DC. I didn't really write. Ser- I mean, I've, I've written for myself my whole life, you know, short stories and things like that. But I didn't really write for another artist until like the year 2000. And, you know, I was in my 30s and I really regret doing it. I should have been writing a lot sooner than I was and approaching my career as not just Phil Hester penciler, but Phil Hester writer and artist. So I'd say that's my biggest regret. What was the other part of the question? Uh, Your proudest accomplishment. That's hard for me to say. (laughs) Well, look, I just ran down my Midwestern passive aggressive (laughs) politeness and I'm back to it again. I'm self-effacing again. I will say this. It's a lesson I learned. This is another, I'm not doubling down on my regrets. I'm telling, I guess this is a proud moment. It was a moment when I overcame a regret of mine. I used to take that self-effacing, self-deprecating humor uh, too far when I was referring to my own work. And I met a woman uh, at a convention who had recently lost her husband. And she wanted to talk to me and talk to me about how 
a book I had done helped her deal with that loss. When she reads that book, she looks back fondly on her time with her husband. And that book has a, an important memory for her in terms of getting through that whole time of her life. It's very moving. And it was an assignment I didn't think that highly of myself. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So in a normal situation, if somebody had come up to me and goes, oh, man, here's this book and brought it for me to sign, I'd be like, oh, my God, not that again. Oh, and then I'd tell some joke about, oh, I can't believe I ever did this, you know? And that's the day I decided to stop doing that. And that was an incredible gift she gave me. So very rarely in your life do you get that kind of clear cut, Mm -hmm. almost movie kind of life lesson about something. But it did help me to learn to not run down my own work because even if you have mixed feelings about your work, uh, to somebody it's very important. And when you run it down in front of them, it's almost like running them down and it's, it's a mistake. Even if it's something you don't feel great about, somebody found something to love in it. And it's sort of your job to respect that love they found. And in a way, that's a real success of your work that you've done. How do you measure success? Oh, easy. If somebody comes up to me, like a, not even like that woman, but if just another creator or a younger artist comes up to me and talks about, like The Wretch is a perfect example. The Wretch never sold more than 5,000 copies ever. Okay. It was never a big hit. It got canceled the day it was nominated for an Eisner. So it was never a big sales hit, mm-hmm. but it must have sold almost exclusively to people that were going to become cartoonists someday because I hear cartoonists talk to me about it all the time. And to me, that's the most rewarding thing to know that my work helped sort of springboard somebody into pursuing a creative life. That's as close as you can get to that kind of immortality you have when you have children. And you know, your, your genes are continuing, your, um, your life lessons are continuing. When that happens in comics, you feel like, oh, there's some, I planted some aesthetic seed in a, in a crater that's going to outlive me and keep working. And not that they're necessarily trying to replicate the same kind of work I'm doing, but that maybe I just help push them into this a little bit. And you sort of help the midwife and other creator into existence. And that's, that's pretty magical, I think. Sorry, I'm getting really deep no, on you. No, no. <laughs> I was like, wow, I can't go any further now. We have to end on that. That's so good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good night. <laughs> I don't know how I know. Yes. Well, it's been a pleasure, Phil, and uh, hope to have you back again sooner than two years because I always right. learn so much talking to you and have such a good time. Well, our lives get busy yeah. and we're sort of, and there's a lot of cartoonists to talk to, a lot of writers and artists. They're not all cartoonists. A lot of writers and artists to talk to, and I understand I have to wait my turn. <laughs> well, thank you so much for making time to be on Creator Talks this week, Phil. It was my pleasure as always. That was a great conversation with Phil Hester. Can't wait to have him back again. A few corrections to the last podcast I posted two weeks ago. Mark Irwin, the executive editor at Insight Comics. Mark was the creative services manager for Wildstorm and the art director at Upper Deck, not at Marvel Comics. And Mark meant to say that Mickey Nielsen is the lead writer at Blizzard. So my apologies, and there are the corrections for the episode two weeks ago with Mark Irwin, executive editor at Insight Comics. And in my creator corner this week, I want to give you an update on previous guests' projects, Caleb Palmquist. He was last on the show discussing his Kickstarter 
Modern Mythology, A Hero's Journey, which was successfully funded. Well, now he's working on the next chapter of A Small Favor, The Undying Soldier, number one, which is now live on Kickstarter. Also available from Sam Johnson, Geek Girl, number six, an exercise jump-on issue, available at geekgirlcomics.com. And also guest Steve Conley, creator of The Middle Age, has volume two available collected as a hardcover and digitally, or you can get both volumes one and two. That campaign is now live on Kickstarter. Okay, so who's coming up in two weeks to the show? Don't want to say yet because I have a lot of guests in play, shifting some schedules around. However, there are some guests coming up you probably haven't heard of, but will be interested to hear about their work and about them, and some guests you have heard of and are very familiar with their creations and properties that they work on. And I'm really excited to bring those interviews to you. More on that once they are all wrapped up and in the can. But until such time, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And there, of course, I will post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. And also, I will be posting other pieces of artwork here and there that I've picked up over the years during the week. And if you want to reach me directly, the best way is to reach me through my email address, creatortalks at gmail.com that's creatortalks at gmail.com and of course this podcast is available everywhere itunes google play stitcher youtube voice enabled devices and of course spotify and please if you have a moment take the time rate and review the show especially on itunes that's the main way people still find their podcasts. It really helps to boost the show. And besides myself and any podcast that you listen to and go back again and again to listen to their shows because, hey, they're free. You can subscribe to them, including my own. It's totally free. If you've never done a podcast, a lot of work goes into those. So all of us, including myself especially, really appreciate your support by at least leaving a rating or review on iTunes. And especially by word of mouth. If you know people who like comic books, want to know more about the books coming out and the creators behind them. And if you're a creator yourself and you want to know more about the creative process and know that you're not alone in your struggle to produce great work and get it noticed, this is the place to hear about it. So tell other people about it too. Well, if you listen to this show on the day that it drops, October 31st, Halloween, my favorite holiday of the year. I hope you have a great Halloween, either trick-or-treating or giving out candy to the kitties. And just enjoy the holiday. I mean, to me, it's a holiday. You know, I ramp up to it by watching old horror movies, which I always do anyway, but especially this time of year. The kids are super stoked about Halloween. We've been going to all kinds of little festivals and events in the area where the kids can pick out a pumpkin and decorate it. Ah, it's just great. Well, thank you for joining me this week. I hope you did enjoy the show, and I look forward to the next show when I can bring to you my next guest. So until such time, be good to everyone, and enjoy those comics that came out this week. There are some great ones coming out the day before Halloween. So, for Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. (laughs) 